It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, May 21, 2020. On this date, May 21, Andrei Sakharov was born in Russia in 1921. Sakharov, of course, was a human rights activist. He was a, a nuclear physicist. He fought for disarmament and peace. When Sakharov would have been 11 years old, on his 11th birthday, in fact, he may have heard the news that Amelia Earhart had landed safely in Londonderry, Northern Ireland, after uh, crossing the Atlantic, the first woman to do so by aircraft. That was on May 21, 1932. So those are uh, two interesting facts about May 21, as we bring you another episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. On today's episode, we have uh, another tale from Stephanie Benato. This one is called The King's Ring. We have uh, a song from Anne-Marie Sweer, who will be singing Russian Lullaby. We have three more chapters from Right Ho Jeeves, which is the uh, P.G. Woodhouse uh, book. We started it uh, yesterday with chapters one and two. So this will be chapters three, four, and five. And then finally, we have the Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. So that's today's episode. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening online to the podcast. Have a great day. Once was a village in Africa where hunger came for a visit. Why did hunger choose this village? We don't know, but it did. The crops died and the wells dried up. The cows gave no more milk. Hunger made itself at home. It sat in the sad eyes of the old people, the weak arms of the men and women who could no longer work, and the swollen bellies of the children. one little girl in that village who thought, I will not die. I will go searching for life. So she left that village. She walked and walked until she arrived at a village where people were bustling about, preparing for market day. There were stalls laden with squash and yams, fish and chicken. She went up to a man who was putting out some fish and asked for work. But when he saw her, he laughed. How can you work, he asked. You can barely hold up your own head. The little girl went from one person to the other, but the answer was always the same. Look at you, the people laughed. Work? How can you work? Bone bug. Skeleton. Swell belly. You spoil the view. Get out of our town. And they picked up sticks and stones and chased her away. She went to another town and another and another, but always it was the same thing. People laughed and taunted her and chased her away. Finally, the little girl's legs gave out beneath her and she fell to the ground by the side of the road. And that is when the little girl left the road to death and walked back into life. And this is how it happened. As she lay in the dirt, she heard a voice. Looking up, she saw a tall man, richly dressed in a fine red cloak, walking down the road and calling. Hear ye, hear ye! His Majesty the King has lost his favorite ring. It is made of gold. On it there are three snakes. The one in the middle has a diamond in its mouth. A rich reward will be offered to anyone, man, woman, or child, who returns this ring. Hear ye, hear ye! Hear ye, Just hear then, ye. the little girl saw something shining in the dirt by her hand. She picked it up. It was a ring. It was made of gold, with three snakes on it. The middle one held a diamond in its mouth. Slowly, she stood up and walked all the way to the palace of the king. But when she got there, she saw the palace was surrounded by a huge wall, and there was only one gate to get in. And blocking that gate stood a man. Now when I say tall, you must think tall as a tree. His legs were as thick as logs, and at the end of his arms his fists bloomed like huge cabbages. 
The little girl was frightened, but she bravely looked up at him and said, Excuse me, I would like to be let in to see the king. The great man roared with laughter. <laughs> you think the king lets beggar girls into his court? Go away before I smash you with my fist. But I have found the king's ring, she said, and opened her hand to show it to him. The gatekeeper scratched a scab on his cheek and smiled a nasty smile and leaned down to look her in the eye. Sure. I'll let you pass through this gate. But on one condition. You must promise to give me half the reward the king will give you for returning his ring. Did the little girl want to share her reward with him? No. But she could well see that she would not get through the gate otherwise. And thinking at least she would have the other half, she gave him her word. And if I don't get my share... I'll crush you like a pumpkin, he snarled as he opened the gate. She passed through, and he closed it behind her. Once inside the gate, the little girl saw the palace was surrounded by fields of grain and gardens and grazing cattle and goats. She walked and walked up a great avenue until at last, exhausted and starving, she arrived in front of the palace. It was a big square building with no windows, and there was only one door to get in. And there, standing in front of it, was the doorkeeper. As much as the gatekeeper was huge, the doorkeeper was small. He was all dressed in black. Black robe, black boots, black bracelets around his wrists. He looked right through her as if she weren't even there. Excuse me, I would like to be let in to see the king, said the little girl. The doorkeeper looked at her. Look at you. Skeleton, moon belly, bag of bones. Go away before I feed you to my cat. But, but I have found the king's ring, cried the little girl, and she held out her hand to show him. The doorkeeper looked down at the ring, and a greedy look came into his eyes. Well, well, he said. So today is your lucky day, swell belly. And it's mine, too. Because you must promise to give me half your reward before I let you through. But I've just promised the other half to the gatekeeper. There will be nothing left for me. The doorkeeper picked her up by the collar and threw her down onto the ground. I will make your skull into a flower pot, he hissed. The little girl looked behind her. The road back was long, and there was only hunger and death waiting for her there. So thinking she would like to see the king's palace once before she died, she agreed to give him half the reward, and he opened the door and pushed her through. She found herself in an enormous hall. At the end of the hall sat the king, "'surrounded by his counsellors. "'As she slowly walked towards him, "'they all stopped talking and stared. "'She was so thin, her bones went click-clack as she walked. "'She knelt before the king and held out the ring. "'I believe this is yours,' she said. "'The king took the ring and put it on his finger. "'It fit perfectly.' He laughed out loud and said, Little girl, you have earned your reward, and never have I been happier to give one. Now what do you want? Do you want food, land, cattle, gold and silver? Whatever you ask for is yours. There were many things that little girl wanted, but whatever she asked for, she would have to give to the gatekeeper and the doorkeeper, and she didn't want to do that. Then she had an idea. Do you promise to give me whatever I ask for? Of course, child, said the king. Then all I want as a reward is for you to beat me one hundred times with the biggest, heaviest stick in your kingdom. What? cried the king. 
I never would have thought a little girl would ask for such a reward. Are you sure that is what you want, child? You gave me your word, she said, and that is what I want. The king sadly turned to his guard. Take her, and beat her as she has asked since I gave her my word. But do not do it here. I, I cannot watch. The guard grabbed the little girl by the arm and was about to pull her outside when she cried out, Wait! This reward does not belong to me. It belongs to the gatekeeper and the doorkeeper because I promised to share it between the two of them. And she told the king the whole story. And when the king heard the story, he laughed and laughed until tears streamed down his face. And when he was finished laughing, he called the two men. They stood looking down at their boots. Is it true, said the king, that it is to you I must give the great reward I offered this little girl? Yes, yeah, 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 your yeah, majesty. Yeah. Then take them outside and give them their reward, yelled the king. And they were very surprised indeed when the soldiers dragged them outside, pulled down their pants and beat them each 50 times with the ow, biggest, ow, heaviest ow, stick ow, you have ow, ever seen. As for the little girl, the king said to her, that was my reward for returning the ring. And now, I would like to give you a reward for bringing justice to my palace. So he kept her with him for many days, feeding her until she was strong again. And then, he sent her back to her village with wagons and wagons loaded full of grain and vegetables and cattle and goats and sheep and seeds to plant for the following year. And when the people of her village saw her coming, they welcomed her with open arms, and together they chased hunger away from that place. And hunger did not come back to that village for seven times seven generations. And if you don't believe me, you can go to that village. That little girl's granddaughter's granddaughter is still there, and she is the one who told me this story. Today's Corona Serenade is Russian Lullaby by Amarin Swear. Thank you. 
Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Three. The first of the telegram arrived shortly after noon, and Jeeves brought it in with the before luncheon snifter. It was from my aunt Dahlia, operating from Market Snodsbury, a small town of sorts, a mile or two along the main road as you leave her country seat. It ran as follows. Come at once, Travers. And when I say it puzzled me like the dickens, I am understating it, if anything. As mysterious a communication I considered as was ever flashed over the wires. I studied it in a profound reverie for the best part of two dry martinis and a dividend. I read it backwards. I read it forwards. As a matter of fact, I have a sort of recollection of even smelling it. But it still baffled me. Consider the facts, I mean. It was only a few hours since this aunt and I had parted, after being in constant association for nearly two months. Yet here she was, with my farewell kiss still lingering on her cheek, so to speak, pleading for another reunion. Bertram Wooster is not accustomed to this gluttonous appetite for his society. Ask anyone who knows me, and they will tell you that after two months of my company, what the normal person feels is that that will about do it for the present. Indeed, I have known people who couldn't stick it out for more than a few days. Before sitting down to the well-cooked, therefore, I sent this reply. Perplexed. Explain. Bertie. To this I received an answer during the after-luncheon sleep. What on earth is there to be perplexed about, ass? Come at once. Travers. Three cigarettes and a couple of turns about the room, and I had my response ready. How do you mean, come at once? Regards, Bertie. I append the comeback. I mean, come at once, you maddening half-wit. What do you think I mean? Come at once or expect an aunt's curse first post tomorrow. Love, Travers. I then dispatch the following message, wishing to get everything quite clear. When you say come, do you mean come to Brinkley Court? And when you say at once, do you mean at once? Fogged at a loss. All the best, Bertie. I send this one off on my way to the drones, where I spent a restful afternoon throwing cards into a top hat with some of the better element. Returning in the evening hush, I found the answer waiting for me. Yes, 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 yes. It doesn't matter whether you understand or not. You must come at once, as I tell you, and for heaven's sake, stop this back chat. Do you think I have made of money that I can afford to send you telegrams every ten minutes? Stop being a fathead and come immediately. Love, Travers. It was at this point that I felt the need of getting a second opinion. I pressed the bell. Jeeves, I said. A V-shaped rumminess has manifested itself from the direction of the Worcestershire. Read these, I said, handing him the papers in the case. He scanned them. What do you make of it, Jeeves? I think Mrs. Travers wishes you to come at once, sir. You gather that, too, do you? Yes, sir. I put the same construction on the thing. But why, Jeeves? Dash it all, she's just had nearly two months of me. Yes, sir. And many people consider the medium dose for an adult two days. Yes, sir. I appreciate the point you raise. Nevertheless, Mrs. Travers appears very insistent. I think it would be well to acquiesce in her wishes. Pop down, you mean? Yes, sir. Well, I certainly can go at once. I have an important conference on at the drones tonight. Pongo Twistleton's birthday party, you remember? Yes, sir. There was a slight pause. We were both recalling the little unpleasantness that had arisen. I felt obliged to allude to it. You're all wrong about that mess jacket, Jeeves. These things are matters of opinion, sir. When I wore it at the casino at Cannes, beautiful women nudged one another and whispered, Who is he? The code at Continental Casinos is notoriously lax, sir. And when I described it to Pongo last night, he was fascinated. Indeed, sir. So were all the rest of those present. One and all admitted that I had got hold of a good thing. Not a dissident voice. 
Indeed, sir. I am convinced that you will eventually learn to love this mess-jacket, Jeeves. I fear not, sir. I gave it up. It is never any use trying to reason with Jeeves on these occasions. Pig-headed is the word that springs to the lips. One sighs and passes on. Well, anyway, returning to the agenda, I can't go down to Brinkley Court or anywhere else yet a while. That's final. I'll tell you what, Jeeves. Give me form and pencil, and I'll wire her that I'll be with her sometime next week, or the week after. Dash it all. She ought to be able to hold out without me for a few days. It only requires willpower. Yes, sir. Right-ho, then. I'll wire. Expect me tomorrow fortnight, or words to some such effect. That ought to meet the case. Then, if you will toddle round the corner and set it off, that will be that. Very good, sir. And so the long day wore on till it was time for me to dress for Pongo's party. Pongo had assured me, while chatting of the affair on the previous night, that this birthday binge of his was to be on a scale calculated to stagger humanity, and I must say I have participated in less fruity functions. It was well after four when I got home, and by that time I was about ready to turn in. I can just remember groping for the bed and crawling into it, and it seemed to me that the lemon had scarcely touched the pillow before I was aroused by the sound of the door opening. I was barely ticking over, but I contrived to raise an eyelid. Is that my tea, Jeeves? No, sir. It is Mrs. Travers. And a moment later there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and the relative had crossed the threshold at fifty miles per hour under her own steam. It has been well said of Bertram Wooster that, while no one views his flesh and blood with a keener and more remorselessly critical eye, he is nevertheless a man who delights in giving credit where credit is due. And if you have followed these memoirs of mine with proper care, you will be aware that I have frequently had occasion to emphasize the fact that Aunt Dahlia is all right. She is the one, if you remember, who married old Tom Travers, or Seconos, as I believe the expression is, the year Bluebottle won the Cambridgeshire, and once induced me to write an article on what the well-dressed man is wearing for that paper she runs, Milady's Boudoir. She is a large, genial soul, with whom it is a pleasure to hobnob. In her spiritual make-up there is none of that subtle gosh-awfulness which renders such an exhibit, say, as my Aunt Agatha, the curse of the home counties and a menace to one and all. I have the highest esteem for Aunt Dahlia, and have never wavered in my cordial appreciation of her humanity, sporting qualities, and general good eggishness. This being so, you may conceive of my astonishment at finding her at my bedside at such an hour. I mean to say, I've stayed at her place many a time and oft, and she knows my habits. She is well aware that until I have had my cup of tea in the morning I do not receive. This crashing in at a moment when she knew that solitude and repose were of the essence was scarcely, I could not but feel, the good old form. Besides, what business had she being in London at all? That was what I asked myself. When a conscientious housewife has returned to her home after an absence of seven weeks, one does not expect her to start racing off again the day after her arrival. One feels that she ought to be sticking around, ministering to her husband, conferring with the cook, feeding the cat, combing and brushing the Pomeranian, in a word, staying put. I was more than a little bleary-eyed, but I endeavored, as far as the fact that my eyelids were more or less glued together would permit, to give her an austere and censorious look. She didn't seem to get it. "'Wake up, Bertie, old ass!' she cried, in a voice that hit me between the eyebrows and went out the back of my head. If Aunt Dahlia has a fault, it is that she is apt to address a vis-a-vis -vis as if he were somebody a half-mile away, whom she had observed riding over hounds. A throwback, no doubt, to the time when she counted the day lost that was not spending in chivying up some unfortunate fox over the countryside. I gave her another of the austere and censorious, and this time it registered. All the effect it had, however, was to cause her to descend to personalities. "'Don't blink at me in that obscene way,' she said. "'I wonder, Bertie,' she proceeded, gazing at me as I should imagine Gussie would have gazed at some newt that was not up to sample, "'if you have the faintest conception how perfectly loathsome you look. 
a cross between an orgy scene in the movies and some low form of pond life. I suppose you were out on the tiles last night? I attended a social function, yes, I said coldly. Pongo Twistleton's birthday party. I couldn't let Pongo down. Noblesse oblige. Well, get up and dress. I felt I could not have heard her aright. Get up and dress? Yes. I turned on the pillow with a little moan, and at this juncture Jeeves entered with the vital oolong. I clutched at it like a drowning man at a straw hat. A deep sip or two, and I felt, I won't say restored, because a birthday party like Pongo Twistleton's isn't a thing you get restored after a mere mouthful of tea, but sufficiently the old Bertram to be able to bend the mind on this awful thing which had come upon me. And the more I bent same, the less I could grasp the trend of the scenario. "'What is this, Aunt Dahlia?' I inquired. "'It looks to me like tea,' was her response. "'But you know best. You're drinking it.' If I hadn't been afraid of spilling the healing brew, I have little doubt that I should have given an impatient gesture. I know I felt like it. "'Not the contents of this cup. All this. You're barging in and telling me to get up and dress and all that rot.' I've barged in, as you call it, because my telegram seemed to produce no effect. And I've told you to get up and dress because I want you to get up and dress. I've come to take you back with me. I like your crust, wiring that you would come next year or whenever it was. You're coming now. I've got a job for you. But I don't want a job. What you want, my lad, and what you're going to get are two very different things. There is man's work for you to do at Brinkley Court. Be ready to the last button in twenty minutes. But I can't possibly be ready to any buttons in twenty minutes. I'm feeling awful. She seemed to consider. Yes, she said. I suppose it's only humane to give you a day or two to recover. All right, then. I shall expect you on the thirtieth at the latest. But, dash it, what is all this? How do you mean a job? Why a job? What sort of job? I'll tell you if you only stop talking for a minute. It's quite an easy, pleasant job. You will enjoy it. Have you ever heard of Market Snodsbury Grammar School? Never. It's a grammar school at Market Snodsbury. I told her a little frigidly that I had divined as much. Well, how was I to know that a man with a mind like yours would grasp it so quickly? She protested. All right, then. Market Snodsbury Grammar School is, as you have guessed, the grammar school at Market Snodsbury. I'm one of the governors. You mean one of the governesses. I don't mean one of the governesses. Listen, ass, there was a board of governors at Eton, wasn't there? Very well. So there is at Market Snodsbury Grammar School, and I'm a member of it. And they left the arrangements for the summer prize-giving to me. This prize-giving takes place on the last, or thirty-first, day of this month. Have you got that clear? I took another ounce of the life-saving and inclined my head. Even after a Pongo Twistleton birthday party I was capable of grasping simple facts like these. I follow you, yes. I see the point you are trying to make, certainly. Market, Snodsbury, Grammar School, Board of Governors, Prize-giving, quite. But what's it got to do with me? You're going to give away the prizes. I goggled. Her words did not appear to make sense. They seemed the mere aimless vaporing of an ant who has been sitting out in the sun without a hat. Me? You. I goggled again. You don't mean me. I mean you, in person. I goggled a third time. You're pulling my leg. I am not pulling your leg. Nothing would induce me to touch your beastly leg. The vicar was to have officiated, but when I got home I found a letter from him saying that he had strained a fetlock and must scratch his nomination. You can imagine the state I was in. I telephoned all over the place. Nobody would take it on. And then suddenly I thought of you. I decided to check all this rot at the outset. Nobody is more eager to oblige deserving aunts than Bertram Wooster. But there are limits, and sharply dent limits at that. So you think I'm going to strew prizes at this bally Dothaboy's hall of yours? I do. And make a speech. Exactly. I laughed derisively. 
For goodness sake, don't start gargling now. This is serious. I was laughing. Oh, were you? Well, I'm glad to see you taking it in this merry spirit. Derisively, I explained. I won't do it. That's final. I simply will not do it. You will do it, young birdie, or never darken my doors again. And you know what that means. No more of Anatole's dinners for you. A strong shudder shook me. She was alluding to her chef, that superb artist, a monarch of his profession, unsurpassed, nay, unequaled, at dishing up the raw material so that it melted in the mouth of the ultimate consumer, Anatole had always been a magnet that drew me to Brinkley Court with my tongue hanging out. Many of my happiest moments have been those which I had spent champing this great man's roasts and ragouts, and the prospect of being barred from digging into them in the future was a numbing one. No, I say, dash it! I thought that would rattle you, greedy young pig. Greedy young pigs have nothing to do with it, I said with a touch of hauteur. One is not a greedy young pig because one appreciates the cooking of a genius. Well, I will say I'd like it myself, conceded the relative, but not another bite of it will you get if you refuse to do this simple, easy, pleasant job. No, not so much as another sniff. So put that in your twelve-inch cigarette holder and smoke it. I began to feel like some wild thing caught in a snare. But why do you want me? I mean, what am I? Ask yourself that. I often have. I mean to say I'm not the type. You have to have some terrific nib to give away prizes. I seem to remember that when I was at school there was generally a prime minister or somebody. Ah, but that was at Eton. At Market Snodsbury we aren't nearly so choosy. Anybody in spats impresses us. Why don't you get Uncle Tom? Uncle Tom? Well, why not? He's got spats. Bertie, she said, I will tell you why not, Uncle Tom. You remember me losing all that money at Baccarat at Cannes? Well, very shortly I shall have to sidle up to Tom and break the news to him. If, right after that, I ask him to put on lavender gloves and a topper and distribute the prizes at Market Snodsbury Grammar School, there will be a divorce in the family. He would pin a note to the pincushion and be off like a rabbit. No, my lad, you're for it, so you may as well make the best of it. But, Aunt Dahlia, listen to reason. I assure you, you've got hold of the wrong man. I'm hopeless at a game like that. Ask Jeeves about the time I got lugged in to address a girls' school. I made the most colossal ass of myself. And I confidently anticipate that you will make an equally colossal ass of yourself on the 31st of this month. That's why I want you. The way I look at it is that, as the thing is bound to be a frost anyway, one may as well get a hearty laugh out of it. I shall enjoy seeing you distribute those prizes, Bertie. Well, I won't keep you, as no doubt you want to do your Swedish exercises. I shall expect you in a day or two. And with these heartless words she beetled off, leaving me a prey to the gloomiest emotions. What with a natural reaction after Pongo's party and this stunning blow, it is not too much to say that the soul was seared. And I was still writhing in the depths when the door opened and Jeeves appeared. Mr. Finknottle to see you, sir, he announced. I gave him one of my looks. Jeeves, I said, I had scarcely expected this of you. You are aware that I was up to an advanced hour last night. You know that I have barely had my tea. You cannot be ignorant of the effect of that hearty voice of Aunt Dahlia's on a man with a headache. And yet you come bringing me Finknottles. Is this a time for a fink or any other kind of noddle? But did you not give me to understand, sir, that you wished to see Mr. Finknoddle to advise him on his affairs? This, I admit, opened up a new line of thought. In the stress of my emotions, I had clean forgotten about having taken Gussie's interests in hand. It altered things. One can't give the raspberry to a client. I mean, you didn't find Sherlock Holmes refusing to see clients just because he had been out late the night before at Dr. Watson's birthday party. I could have wished that the man had selected some more suitable hour for approaching me, but as he appeared to be a sort of human lark, leaving his watery nest at daybreak, I supposed I had better give him an audience. True, I said, 
All right, bung him in. Very good, sir. But before doing so, bring me one of those pick-me-ups of yours. Very good, sir. And presently he returned with the vital essence. I have had occasion, I fancy, to speak before now of these pick-me-ups of Jeeves's and their effect on a fellow who is hanging to life by a thread on the morning after. What they consist of, I couldn't tell you. He says some kind of sauce, the yolk of a raw egg, and a dash of red pepper, but nothing will convince me that the thing doesn't go much deeper than that. Be that as it may, however, the results of swallowing one are amazing. For perhaps the split part of a second, nothing happens. It is as though all nature waited breathless. Then suddenly it is as if the last trump had sounded and Judgment Day set in with unusual severity. Bonfires burst out in all parts of the frame. The abdomen becomes heavily charged with molten lava. A great wind seems to blow through the world, and the subject is aware of something resembling a steam-hammer striking the back of the head. During this phase, the ears ring loudly, the eyeballs rotate, and there is a tingling about the brow. And then, just as you are feeling that you ought to ring up your lawyer and see that your affairs are in order before it is too late, the whole situation seems to clarify. The wind drops, the ears cease to ring, birds twitter, brass bands start playing, the sun comes up over the horizon with a jerk. And a moment later, all you are conscious of is a great peace. As I drained the glass now, new life seemed to burgeon within me. I remembered Jeeves, who, however much he may go off the rails at times in the matter of dress clothes, and in his advice to those in love, has always had a neat turn of phrase, once speaking of someone rising on stepping-stones of his dead self to higher things. It was that way with me now. I felt that the Bertram Wooster who lay propped up against the pillows had become a better, stronger, finer Bertram. "'Thank you, Jeeves,' I said. "'Not at all, sir.' That touched the exact spot. I am now able to cope with life's problems. I am gratified to hear it, sir. What madness not to have had one of those before tackling Aunt Dahlia. However, too late to worry about that now. Tell me of Gussie. How did he make out at the fancy dress ball? He did not arrive at the fancy dress ball, sir. I looked at him a bit austerely. Jeeves, I said. I admit that after that pick-me-up of yours I feel better, but don't try me too high. Don't stand by my sickbed talking absolute rot. We shot Gussie into a cab, and he started forth, headed for wherever this fancy dress ball was. He must have arrived. No, sir. As I gather from Mr. Finknottle, he entered the cab convinced in his mind that the entertainment to which he had been invited was to be held at number 17 Suffolk Square, whereas the actual rendezvous was number 71 Norfolk Terrace. These aberrations of memory are not uncommon with those who, like Mr. Finknottle, belong essentially to what one might call the dreamer type. One might also call the fat-headed type, yes, sir. Well? On reaching number 17 Suffolk Square, Mr. Finknottle endeavoured to produce money to pay the fare. What stopped him? The fact that he had no money, sir. He discovered that he had left it, together with his ticket of invitation, on the mantelpiece of his bedchamber in the house of his uncle where he was residing. Bidding the cabman to wait, accordingly, he rang the doorbell, and when the butler appeared, requested him to pay the cab adding that it was all right, as he was one of the guests invited to the dance. The butler then disclaimed all knowledge of a dance on the premises. And declined to unbelt? Yes, sir. Upon which Mr. Finknottle directed the cabman to drive him back to his uncle's residence. Well, why wasn't that the happy ending? All he had to do was go in, collect cash and ticket, and there he would have been on velvet. I should have mentioned, sir, that Mr. Finknottle had also left his latch-key on the mantelpiece of his bedchamber. He could have rung the bell. 
he did ring the bell, sir, for some fifteen minutes. At the expiration of that period he recalled that he had given permission to the caretaker, the house was officially closed and all the staff on holiday, to visit his sailor son at Portsmouth. Golly, Jeeves! Yes, sir. These dreamer types do live, don't they? Yes, sir. What happened then? Mr. Finknoddle appears to have realized at this point that his position as regards the cabman had become equivocal. The figures on the clock had already reached a substantial sum, and he was not in a position to meet his obligations. He could have explained. You cannot explain to cabmen, sir. On endeavoring to do so, he found the fellow skeptical of his bona fides. I should have legged it. That is the policy which appears to have commended itself to Mr. Finknoddle. He darted rapidly away, and the cabman, endeavouring to detain him, snatched at his overcoat. Mr. Finknoddle contrived to extricate himself from the coat, and it would seem that his appearance in the masquerade costume beneath it came as something as a shock to the cabman. Mr. Finknoddle informs me that he heard a species of whistling gasp, and, looking round, observed the man crouching against the railings with his hands over his face. Mr. Finknoddle thinks he was praying. No doubt an uneducated, superstitious fellow, sir, possibly a drinker. Well, if he hadn't been one before, I'll bet he started being one shortly afterwards. I expect he could scarcely wait for the pubs to open. Very possibly. In the circumstances he might have found a restorative agreeable, sir. And so in the circumstances might Gussie, too, I should think. What on earth did he do after that? London late at night, or even in the daytime, for that matter, is no place for a man in scarlet tights. No, sir. He invites comment. Yes, sir. I can see the poor old bird ducking down side streets, skulking in alleyways, diving into dustbins. I gathered from Mr. Finknoddle's remark, sir, that something very much on those lines was what occurred. Eventually, after a trying night, he found his way to Mr. Sipperley's residence, where he was able to secure lodging and a change of costume in the morning. I nestled against the pillows, the brow a bit drawn. It is all very well to try to do old school friends a spot of good, but I could not but feel that in espousing the cause of a lunkhead capable of mucking things up as Gussie had done, I had taken on a contract almost too big for human consumption. It seemed to me that what Gussie needed was not so much the advice of a seasoned man of the world as a padded cell in Colney Hatch and a couple of good keepers to see that he did not set the place on fire. Indeed. For an instant I had had half a mind to withdraw from the case and hand it back to Jeeves. But the pride of the Woosters restrained me. When we Woosters put our hands to the plough, we do not readily sheath the sword. Besides, after that business of the mess-jacket, anything resembling weakness would have been fatal. I suppose you realize, Jeeves, I said, for though one dislikes to rub it in, these things have to be pointed out, that all this was your fault. Sir? It's no good saying, sir, you know it was. If you had not insisted on his going to that dance, a mad project as I spotted from the first, this would not have happened. Yes, sir, but I confess I did not anticipate— Always anticipate everything, Jeeves, I said a little sternly. It is the only way. Even if you had allowed him to wear a Pierrot costume, things would not have panned out as they did. A Pierrot costume has pockets. However, I went on more kindly— we need not go into that now. If all this has shown you what comes of going about the place in scarlet tights, that is something gained. Gussie waits without, you say? Yes, sir. Then shoot him in, and I'll see what I can do for him. End of chapter 5 The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hi everyone, welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. Do I have any Come From Away fans out there? I'm enormously in love with Come From Away. I think it's something to be extraordinarily proud of. And I think it, it beats the very, very heart of Canada and Canadians and who we are 
as, as a people and as a strong nation. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. When I went to go see Come From Way, I saw it with my, my dear, dear friend, Brandon Schwartz, so talented. Um, so those of you who know Brandon Schwartz, we went together and we had a bottle of wine beforehand at, at dinner and then we went to go see Come From Way and I started crying the minute it started. And he must have thought I was just completely nuts, but it was so emotional for me and just so touching. And we left me, he was like, did you like it? I was like, yeah, despite like my mascara running all night. So Schwartz, if you're listening, that was a fun night. Thank you for that. Hey, oh, welcome to the rock. If you come from my way, hey, you probably understand about a half of what we say. We say no man's an island, but an island makes a man. Especially when one comes from one like Newfoundland. Welcome to the rock.
the time she is all of this mixed up and baked in a beautiful pie she's gone but she used to be mine extraordinary speaking of extraordinary
dear friends. This is a gorgeous song from the musical Six. And I've discovered it recently. I just love it more and more. Sometimes I play it just for myself for fun. This is part of Star. You've got a good heart, but I know it changes. A restless type, untamed. concludes this segment from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.